Guys, open your Bibles to Acts chapter 19 this morning. Acts 19. We're continuing our study through the book of Acts. We're moving along in a series of studies taking us through chapter 19, where we're looking at Paul's time of ministry in Ephesus. In part two, uh, our, our main text will be Acts 19, verses 11 through 20. But just for some context, uh, as a reminder, Ephesus, which was the capital of the Roman province of Asia Minor in sort of the southwestern corner of modern-day Turkey, was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. It was a major commercial center in that day. It was home to one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Temple of Artemis or Diana. If you ever wonder why sometimes in the Bible you f- you'll find two different names being used, like Artemis or Diana, oftentimes it's because of the uh, sort of the, the cultural background behind either it being uh, the Roman sort of name or maybe the Greek name that was attached to that. That's true of Artemis or Diana. She was worshipped as a goddess of fertility and magic and astrology. In the city of Ephesus, the practice of magic was extremely popular and prevalent. Because of its popularity, the phrase Ephesian writings was used to describe any documents that contained magic formulas and spells. And Ephesus uh, was also known as a place of uh, great demonic activity. The reason I share those things again is so we uh, kind of are reminded of the cultural and contextual aspect of how Paul was now seeking to minister in this city to these people. And those things specifically are things that we're going to see now played out in our study today. And then also next week when it comes to these areas of demonic activity and magic and idolatry. So far, Luke has shared a couple examples of Paul's ministry to the disciples in Ephesus how they were equipped through the word of God and then empowered by the spirit of God, his ministry to the Jews in the synagogue for three months, how that led them after they hardened their hearts to to Paul and his message, to Paul taking the disciples and ministering from the school of Tyrannus, which was some sort of lecture hall that most likely belonged to a Greek philosopher, And then how God's word spread throughout Asia Minor because of Paul's ministry from that school for two years. And now in our verses this morning, we're going to see how the work and word of God was invading, was taking back enemy territory, was delivering and transforming lives of unbelievers, was purifying the lives of believers, and how the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified in this exceedingly dark city of Ephesus. And so with that in mind, let's read Acts 19, verses 11 and 12. Luke writing here, he says, Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. I think the first thing that probably many of us think when we read verse 11 is, so there are usual miracles. Uh, when I think of a miracle, I'm always thinking of it being un- unusual. And yet Luke is saying, well, no, these ones were especially unusual. They were extraordinary. They were things that didn't regularly happen. And, and I would say too up front that As we consider the entirety of the book of Acts, it can be easy for us as we're trekking through to kind of think of a lot of these things just being sort of the normative experience of life through the hands of the apostles or in these different areas. But what we can miss is the book of Acts taking us over the span of about 30 years. And when we think about these things spanning that much time, what we're seeing here is not 
this was a daily occurrence, but that these were noteworthy things that Luke made sure to take note of as he's, as he's remarking on the history of the early church, what the Spirit of God was doing through the lives of the apostles and through other disciples to reach lost people for Jesus Christ and to see a church started and formed and strengthened and built as Jesus said he would do in Matthew 16, that he would build this church and the gates of Hades would not prevail against it. But I like what William Barclay, and I don't agree with everything this guy ever said, or his theology even on every single thing. I say that because you could read something and go, wow, Jared, really? why does he like, why did he quote this guy? William Barclay said this about verse 11, and I really, I really liked what he said. He said, it's very significant that the narrative does not say that Paul did these extraordinary deeds. It says that God did them through Paul's hands. It has been said that God is everywhere looking for hands to use. We may not be able to work miracles with our, own, uh, with our hands, but without doubt, he says, we can give them to God so that he may work through them. I love that. You know, I think sometimes we kind of disqualify ourselves because we feel like, well, I don't have a certain type of ministry. I didn't live in these times. I'm not a a church leader or whatever it might be. And so I don't really have anything that, I mean, what do I have that God would want to use? And I would just say to that, as William Barclay is pointing out, If you have hands, if you have feet, if you have a mouth, if you have ears, if you have time, if you have resources, if God's put anything in your hands, if he's put any person around you, and you have a willingness to say, God, all of it is yours, all of this this is yours, that God is more than willing to take that and to do something with it. There's just this willingness to say, Lord, whatever you want to do, my hands are open. Which isn't just, you know, well, if somebody doesn't have hands anatomically, that they have nothing that God can take. No, if you have a bead in your heart, if there's any sort of opportunity for you to have any connection with somebody else, God can use your life. He can use my life. But with Paul, we're given some examples of these unusual miracles. And that word miracle, actually, in the Greek is the word dunamis, which is where we get the word power from. Or that word, literally, we would translate it dynamite. When Jesus said that you would receive power from on high, that word power is that word dunamis. It's the same word that's translated miracles here. God was working unusual power, miracles, through the life of the Apostle Paul, that even handkerchiefs, the stuff that Paul blew his nose on, no, it was mostly like a headband that he would wear to wipe the sweat, keep the dirt and sweat off of his face, out of his eyes as he worked, or aprons, we're told, and this apron was a a worker's smock. It was something that Paul would have used in his trade as a tent maker to sort of keep his own garments from getting messed up. Both of these things, both of these articles were brought from Paul's body to the sick and demon-possessed who found healing and deliverance. And this gives me the impression that as Paul was just going about his daily work of tent making in order to provide for himself there in the city of Ephesus that people were finding some things that Paul would use like these handkerchiefs and these aprons and and they would take them whether they asked Paul if they could have them or not is not clear we don't know if Paul's working and then he's reaches for his apron he's like where did that go and he sees some dude taking off with his apron and toe flapping in the wind or 
he's walking around the marketplace and he sees some lady with his sweatband uh, sweat around her head looking like she was trying to be Karate Kid. Like, we don't know exactly how this looked, how this kind of transpired, but people were finding things that had been on Paul's person, worn by Paul, had touched his skin maybe, and, and took them because they saw the power of God at work in and through Paul's life and believed somehow that even the wipe rags and the workman's smocks that were connected to him could be used by God to heal sickness and drive out demons. Now, this wasn't because there was some sort of teaching to support this that would tell them that if they did that, then others would be healed because that's not the case. But just like with the woman who was healed of her flow of blood when she touched the hem of Jesus' garment. And just like with those who brought the sick out into the streets, thinking that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them and heal them, as we see in Acts chapter 5. Here we see people acting in faith, clearly along with some superstition on things that they had no confidence from any sort of teaching from Jesus or the apostles would even do what they hoped it would do. It's not like Paul was telling people, take, just take my sweatband, throw it on somebody. They'll be grossed out for a second, but they'll be healed. Take my workman's apron and drape it over the face of some demon-possessed person. They might freak out, but the demon will come out. This wasn't what Paul was, there, there wasn't like these prescriptions that Paul was giving. These people were just, in their own heart, were going, I believe, I'm seeing God work through Paul's life. I believe that God can do something powerful in someone else's life. These are people bringing them to someone else. They're not even necessarily using them for themselves. It's kind of like the, the, the friends that brought the paralytic to Jesus. And they can't get through to him because of the crowd. And so they peel open the person's roof and lay the, you know, they, they, they drop down through the ceiling their friend who was paralytic. And Jesus says that he saw their faith. It, it, we don't even see in that account that it says Jesus looked at the paralytic's faith. He looked at the friend's faith and God honored the friend's faith. And telling that man, your sins are forgiven, which wasn't necessarily the next conclusion we would have thought Jesus would have said. Jesus was going to go on to say, look, if I, can, if I could say my sins are forgiven, and then I heal the person, it's, it's showing my power. It's showing my authority. It's showing my credentials as Messiah. These people had no confidence and yet they did it anyways and yet god in his grace and mercy met them in their place of faith just like he did with the woman who touched the hem of jesus's garment just like those people that were laid in the streets so that P peter's shadow might pass over them and we find that diseases left those who were sick and that evil spirits demons literally went out of those who were possessed. Check out what Bible commentator Warren Wearsby said about this. He made some really good points here. He said, when our Lord performed miracles, he usually had at least three purposes in mind. One, to show his compassion and meet human needs. Two, to teach a spiritual truth and Three, to present his credentials as their Messiah, as the Messiah. He said the apostles followed the same pattern in their miracles. In fact, the ability to do miracles was one of the proofs of apostolic authority. He references Mark 16, 20, Romans 15, 18 through 19, 2 Corinthians 12, verse 12, 
Hebrews 2, verses 1 through 4. He says, miracles of themselves do not save lost sinners. Luke 16, 27 through 31, and John 2, 23 through 25. Miracles, he says, must be tied to the message of the word of God. God enabled Paul to perform special miracles because Ephesus was a center for the occult, as we're seeing here. And Paul was demonstrating God's power right in Satan's territory. See, this account of what God did through Paul isn't meant to be a, a pattern for us to seek to replicate, isn't meant to be the norm of how God is wanting to work or how we're to seek to see God work because even these things were considered unusual miracles that God worked through the Apostle Paul's life and ministry. But though we might not see these sorts of unusual miracles today, which doesn't mean they don't or can't still happen, there are miracles that God works in and around our lives all the time that we don't even regard as miracles because they just seem too ordinary. They seem too usual. I want us to consider some examples of this. The, the power of God to, say, to take someone who is dead spiritually and then make them alive in Christ Jesus as they put their faith in him for salvation is a miracle. When God shows up in power in something that we've been praying about that could only happen because he did it. That's a miracle. When God meets you and me and gives us his supernatural peace in a situation where it makes no sense for us to be at peace, that's a miracle. When God, by his power, works in an area of your or my life, a struggle maybe, and brings change, brings victory, where previously, by our own efforts, we couldn't produce any sort of lasting change or find true victory, that is a miracle. That is the power of of God at work in and around your and my life. And yet how often do we not even see it in that way? We're looking for the extraordinary to then give God glory. Whoa, like that person was had a disease and then all of a sudden the doctor said the cancer's gone like Praise you, God, and we should. But what about those so normal sorts of things that we just considered and more? Where God shows up on a regular basis in your and my life, blesses us when we don't even deserve it. Answers our prayer, doesn't answer our prayer. You have prayers that you're thankful now that God didn't answer. Miracle, the miracle, his power at work. We don't look at these things and go, okay, God, what kind of article of clothing can I drape over someone for them to be healed? Can I take off my coat and run down the aisle and start whacking people? You know who I have in mind. <laughs> not only is there not any biblical precedence for that, that's just weird. But there are people who take these sorts of things. And then over the television and on the internet for $49.99 plus shipping and handling... You can buy some prayer cloth that was blessed by some religious shyster. Some prayer rug that if you kneel on it, every prayer will be answered that you ever wanted. These things aren't meant to have a movement built around them. That's happened often throughout Christendom. We find something somewhere and then 
all of a sudden that becomes the normative experience that's expected of every believer. But we discount all of those other very normal sorts of things where that never happened. People that would look at the text from last week even and, and see that Paul laid his hands on these 12 disciples. They were baptized with the Spirit and they began to speak in tongues and prophesy and then all of a sudden, the whole movement is built around that, that that's what every believer should do. In fact, you're not really saved unless you can do that. Forgetting that there's so many other accounts where we don't even see any of those things manifested when somebody was saved or when they were filled with the Spirit. But oftentimes what happens is we read things like this and because we're not seeing this happen in our own lives, we can come away going, well then God must, must not still be wanting to heal people today. He must not be, you know, driving evil spirits out of people. No, That's not the conclusion that we come to. We take the Bible for what it says. These things are here. They, they happened. God can still do them. But our expectation is not for that. God clearly worked in specific sorts of ways and specific sorts of environments that necessitated these sorts of things happening. And this was especially true in the city of Ephesus where demonic activity was, was huge. They needed to see that the power of God was greater than the power that they were seeing in their occult practices or thought that they had because of their magic charms and spells and books. That Jesus was greater. Jesus was greater. But with the mention of evil spirits there in verse 12, Luke goes on in verses 13 through 16 to record how others sought to imitate the power of God that was at work through Paul's life when it came to casting out demons in a really interesting situation that took place as well. But read verse 13 as we move on. It says, Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, We exercise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. The itinerant Jewish exorcists had obviously heard about what was happening, how handkerchiefs and aprons had been on Paul, been taken and brought to those who were possessed by demons how these demons were driven out had heard that paul was always preaching about and calling on the name of jesus and so they took it upon themselves to call the name of the lord jesus over those who had evil spirits but there was a problem they were calling the name of the lord jesus as a point of authority to drive out the evil spirits but they had never called on the name of the lord jesus to save them, never surrendered, bowed their knees to Jesus and, and his authority as Lord over their own lives personally. They were really just using Jesus' name as sort of a magical phrase to hopefully give them authority over demons because they saw that Paul, who was always preaching Jesus, had a power they did not have. So as they went out to exercise, drive out evil spirits, demons, they would say, we exercise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. The disconnect was so huge that they didn't even call the name of Jesus directly. They didn't say, I exercise you in the name of Jesus. They say, well, Paul talks about this guy, Jesus, and I'm so, the Jesus that Paul preached about, like, I exercise you in the name of the guy that some other guy that I've heard about also is, you know, doing. It's like a six degrees of Kevin Bacon 
sort of thing going on here. Well, I knew a guy that knew a guy. That guy knew Paul. He heard him preach. And, and then, you know, if you trace it back, I kind of know him because my friend heard him preaching. And it's not how it works. <laughs> not how it works. They knew Paul preached Jesus. They understood the name of Jesus was central to Paul's preaching and ministry. They came to the conclusion there must have been power in the name of Jesus. But as we're going to see, they lacked the power of Jesus in their own lives personally. We see this play out even more in verses 14 through 16. It says in verse 14, also, there were seven sons of Siva, a Jewish chief priest, who did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded." Luke records this whole situation, writing about these seven sons of a Jewish chief priest who did this, who tried to exercise a demon by saying, we exercise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches, but something really wild happened. The demon answered these sons of... I think in their minds, they're just thinking, I'll say it, It'll be gone by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Be gone. But all of a sudden, the demon inside the man talks back. Answers. Jesus, I know. This is really interesting because the word know here is actually two different words in the Greek language. Literally what this demon say, says to these seven itinerant Jewish exorcists is, Jesus, I know by interaction and experience. I know Jesus. And Paul, I know about. I am aware of. But who are you? Can you imagine being them at this moment? How freaked out this would have made them? The demons knew Jesus. Of course they did. He is God. He's the one who created them as angelic beings originally. Before they followed after Lucifer in his pride his rebellion and they knew about paul who no doubt caused havoc for them as god worked through his life brought people out of the kingdom of darkness and into the marvelous light of jesus christ as they placed their faith in jesus but they didn't know and they had no fear of these jewish exorcists they were not a threat so they weren't worth the demon's time or attention to even bother with. You know, it's one of those things where a preacher would say at this point, would you be known by the demons? And I think most of us would go, I don't want to be known by a demon. I don't want them knowing my name. No. No, no. And no way would I even put myself in this sort of situation, you know, like. But truly, is, is any sort of effect from our lives disturbing what the demonic realm is seeking to do and keeping their hold over people's lives? Would you and I in this situation be even someone that could, the demon would say, I, I'm aware I'm aware because this person is living so radically for Jesus. 
that literally the kingdom of darkness is being shaken in a sense by what Jesus is doing through this person's life, through our lives. Again, none of us want our names to be, it's kind of like when we read about Satan, Lucifer, coming before the throne of God to talk about Job. Like, I don't, I don't want him asking about me. I saw what happened to Job. Lord, just tell him no. <laughs> tell him no. Jesus is speaking to Peter the night he's about to be betrayed. Satan's, Peter, Satan's asked about you. What? What did you say? <laughs> Jesus tells them, he wants to sift you like wheat. He wants to jack you up, Peter. Like that, he just wants to take that threshing tool and just tell your chaff. Don't worry, Peter, I've prayed for you. That's it, Lord? You just prayed for me? You didn't tell him no? Guys, what is God doing through our lives? What kind of impact is taking place as we're seeking to be about the gospel of Jesus, about the kingdom of God in this world? There are conflicting kingdoms here at play. That the enemy doesn't want to lose ground. I want us to understand that Satan knows better than you and me how short his time is. He knows I'm confident the word better than you and me. Knows what's already been prophesied about the end. Knows that someday, even very soon, that an angel we don't even get the name of is going to take him and bind him and put him into a pit for a thousand years. That ultimately the lake of fire is his eternal destination. Satan is not in hell. We like to think of it in that way, and our culture somehow has kind of come up with this weird, wacky, not theologically accurate view of sort of demons. Satan is a demon. That they're just in hell and... You know, occasionally one comes up, tries to mess with us, and has his pitchfork and horns and tail. Whole bit. Not accurate. Lucifer, we're told, was beautiful. An amazing angel that God created. And we think about these things, and we, we kind of feel like so detached. Like, man, like, it's there. They're there. We're up here. It's like, no, the demonic realm is at work behind the scenes. Wanting to take as many people down with them as they can because they know where they're going. You and I have the gospel which is able to take somebody out of that kingdom of darkness, off of that broad road leading to eternal destruction and can make them a child of God. And let me remind us, that was us. That was each of us before Jesus saved us. Jesus I know, Paul I know, who are you? The demon-possessed man jumps on them, overpowers them, beats them up so badly they have to flee from the house naked and wounded. How humiliated these sons of a Jewish chief priest who no doubt prided themselves in sort of their religious pedigree as being a part of a priestly family fleeing from a demon after they tried to invoke the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches 
But God's actually going to use their failure to magnify the name of Jesus as the situation becomes known throughout Ephesus, as we're going to see in the last several verses of our text this morning, verses 17 through 20. But let's read verse 17. It says, This became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. Can you imagine being those seven sons of Siva? It became known to all. Like these guys probably never wanted to show their faces ever again. Any sort of potential ongoing itinerant sort of quote unquote ministry was like gone. Everybody knew what happened. All the Jews, all the Greeks, everybody in between knew what was happened, knew what happened. What's amazing is that this situation becoming known that not only could they not cast out the demon that they were trying to in, invoke through the name of the Jesus who Paul preached, but got the crud beat out of them too, and that it didn't cause the people of Ephesus to come to the conclusion that Jesus' name had no power or that Jesus had no real authority over the demonic realm. No, it actually caused great fear great awe, great reverence to fall on the people of the city. And that awe actually led to the name of the Lord Jesus being magnified. Now, whenever I think of this term magnify, you know, when we think of a magnifying glass, we think of making something bigger that's actually small. Maybe too small for us to really notice. But when it comes to the magnification of Jesus, we're not making him bigger. What's happening is that we're being now allowed to see how big he truly is. Maybe our estimation of him was too small. We, we because of our you know, biases or what we've, backgrounds we've come out of that we maybe don't see him for how great and powerful and amazing he truly is. And this magnification of Jesus is something that is, is a writing of something that's off in sort of the perspective of our hearts. Because we see how our view of Jesus really is when we go through things that are difficult, don't we? When we face a problem and we freak out, what we're showing, what's being revealed oftentimes, and this is a to make anyone go, oh gosh, I'm just a terrible saint. I'm not faith-filled enough. No, not that. But what that exposes is that our estimation of Jesus is not very big. That we don't see him as big enough to handle the thing that we're dealing with that, at that moment. We all of a sudden try to make things happen in our own efforts. Because maybe we feel like, even though we wouldn't say it, maybe we're not even thinking of it, but sort of subconsciously, that we need to help Jesus out. He needs my help. When he doesn't. He doesn't need us at all. But yet he wants us. And he wants to work in and through us. And he wants to, show up in our circumstances and, and this magnifying of the name of Jesus. And we're reminded again that his name speaks of who he is. His name is, is part of his, a, a symbol of his authority that the name of Jesus would be seen as how amazing it actually is. 
people's estimation of Jesus there in the city of Ephesus began to change. It began to be put into the right perspective that Jesus really is awesome. He really is powerful. The rest of the people who heard about this situation were able to conclude that the problem wasn't in who Paul preached about. It wasn't Jesus. It wasn't because Jesus' name or his authority lacked power to deliver from demonic possession, but that the problem was solely with the Jewish exorcists who thought they had the magic recipe but lacked knowing Jesus personally. And added to the Jews and Greeks being in awe because of that situation, which led to the name of the Lord Jesus being magnified, we see that God used that situation in the lives of many of the believers in Ephesus as well. Look at what we're told in verses 18 and 19. Verse 18, and many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Also, many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. Many who had believed in Jesus had come out of occult practices. This was their life. This is what they adhered to. This was maybe, we could put it, their religion. It was their sort of spirituality, was, you know, dabbling in magic and spells and having magical charms, maybe in astrology or palm reading or going to a spirit medium. There was these things attached to the working of Satan, ultimately, that these people had been saved out of but maybe hadn't realized the, the false, deceptive, and dangerous nature of continuing in those things now that they were saved. But God used these circumstances we've been looking at to reveal to them that those things were not to have any sort of place in their lives any longer now that they belonged to Jesus Christ. And so they came confessing and telling their deeds. Listen to what David Gutzik in his commentary said about this as he points out some significance behind uh, what they were doing here. He says, It is significant that these practitioners of magic came confessing and telling their deeds. It was thought that the power of these magic spells was in their secrecy, which was renounced in the telling. Notice, Paul wasn't going to each and every believer in the city of Ephesus and saying, okay, tell me what kind of sin you've got in your life. Come on, confess it. Tell me what you've been doing, you little sinner. You better hope Jesus doesn't find out about it. No, it wasn't, none of that was, Paul wasn't going around just going like, and you, you look kind of shady. What's been going on with you recently? No, these believers were responding to the convicting work of the Spirit of God within them. And this inward conviction by the Holy Spirit drove them to confess and tell what they had been involved with, renouncing those things that had stayed hidden in their lives, which then led them to repenting and destroying those things openly that were damaging them spiritually. 
as many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together, which they had no doubt, doubt spent a lot of money on to purchase and burned them in the sight of all. It was a, a public forsaking of the things that they knew had no place in their lives privately or publicly any longer. I want us to notice that these believers were not trying to manage their sin. The things connected to their life before Christ Jesus that would damage and hinder their fellowship with the Lord and cause them to sin against the Lord. But instead they laid those things down and surrender to the Lord and burned them completely so that none of it would remain and have a foothold in their lives. You know, sometimes believers will seek to manage their sin instead of repenting of it, and it never works. You can't manage your sin. When you try to manage sin, when you make exceptions and excuses for it, when you try to exert your own power to overcome and control it, the only thing that ever happens is that your sin will manage you. It'll manage you. We feel like I'm the manager. I'm in control. I'll, I can not do it when I don't want to, and I can. I don't have to get rid of it completely. I mean, because... I can handle it. I'll just have this little reserve of this thing in my life. It's still there. It cost me money. I invested in that thing. I don't have to get rid of it. I can't find a verse that tells me I have to. But deep down, you know that that thing doesn't belong. Things are just there. and they, Because they're there and hiding they're there in the darkness somewhere that thing still has power over your life these these believers who for i don't know how many years maybe their whole lives that invested themselves in these magical books and occult practices knew that if they didn't talk about it they could keep the power of it and so for them to confess, to tell what they had done, to tell what they had bought into, knowing that that thing, as they did that, lost all of its power, what a great spiritual picture that is for you and me. James, in his letter, says to confess your sins that you might be healed. And there is something about confession that God will use to bring about healing in your life. Oftentimes, because of that aspect of accountability, of someone being able to follow up with you, to pray for you, to, to come alongside of you in those things, that, that God will use that. Oftentimes when we just leave it hidden and we don't want to talk about it, we don't want anybody else to know about it, we're too ashamed. There's still some sort of power that that thing has over our lives that it should not have. You can't manage your sin or your sin will manage you. These believers believe that is why they did what they did in this passage. Now, according to my calculations, and I'm like the worst person at math, so if I got this wrong, don't hold it against me. I used a calculator, so it should be accurate. Since the silver coin, the, the drachma, was about a day's wage for a worker, if we try and get an idea of what this might look like, the kind of sacrifice that this would have been, if we took a modern sort of approach with our current minimum wage, which I believe is $15 an hour. $15 an hour times eight hours in a workday. If we multiplied that times 50,000, 
that would add up to $6 million. And this is probably a low estimate. Can you imagine? We bring all this stuff that used to have a hold over our lives, pornographic material or things that we've held on to, and maybe for some it's alcohol or drugs, and we brought it all, and we just had a huge bonfire, and it was millions and millions of dollars worth of money that was being burned up of items. That's exactly what was going on here with these believers. This was a costly bonfire. This was no light or flippant thing for these believers to take part in as they rejected the things of darkness, their old occult practices and books that used to hold such a significant place in their lives. But no matter how great the cost was to them personally and financially, it's clear they wanted to make a complete break from those things that Jesus had saved them out of. And this is a powerful example for us today. You know, what might Jesus be calling some of us to make a complete break from? What has he been, get, what has he been convicting you or me about that we've not yet confessed, we've not renounced, we've not repented of? Let me encourage each of us, if that's us this morning, don't, re, don't remain in anything that Jesus shed his blood to set you free from. Don't remain in anything that Jesus shed his blood to set you free from. If something has any sort of power over your life that isn't Jesus... That thing does not belong. It doesn't belong. And maybe for some, there's a sort of bonfire of sorts that needs to happen. I know, bonfire, we're in a drought. We've got fire warnings and you can't have a fire outside. Maybe it's not a fire. But there are some things that maybe that God's saying, you need to lay down. And it may not even be a thing. It may not be an object. It could be pride. It could be bitterness that you've been holding against somebody else, unforgiveness. That thing is destroying you from the insides. And the Lord today would say to you, throw it in the fire. Repent of that thing. But our final verse, verse 20, reveals another result of what God did through all of this. Verse 20 says, So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. Or as the English Standard Version puts it, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. These are words that Luke uses to describe what the word of the Lord was doing in the lives of those who lived in the city of Ephesus. And this is another of Luke's progress reports he's been giving us throughout the book of Acts. The name of Jesus was magnified. People were renouncing, repenting, rejecting the things of darkness in a public and powerful way. And as a result of all of these things, God's word grew. It increased mightily. It prevailed in this area, in the lives of many people, as the Bible Knowledge Commentary put it, the cleansed church became a powerful and growing church. You know, the problem oftentimes is that we want the power and the growth, but we lack both because we don't want to submit to the Lord's cleansing. Don't want to have to renounce and confess things that we would rather just stay hidden, don't want to have to repent and lay on the bonfire, so to speak, the things we've given too much value to that are actually damaging us in our fellowship with Jesus. And again, 
As we considered in the beginning of our study, God is looking for hands, for lives, to use for his kingdom and glory. And the right response then is a, is a consecration, a setting apart of every bit of our lives holy to the Lord. Whatever is keeping us from being consecrated is a stumbling block. It's a hindrance to what the Lord is wanting to do with us today. And it doesn't belong. I believe there's a lot here for the Lord to encourage, to equip us with, to convict and correct us on. And uh, we'll see more of this account heading into next week. But I want us to take communion together today. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 and following. I'm actually going to read a few verses past that because it kind of goes along actually with this final emphasis here on, on cleansing, not leaving things that don't belong Paul writing to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three, 23, he says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it. In remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. But he, he says something after that. He says, therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, herself. And so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. You know, as we come to the Lord's table, partake of the Lord's Supper, communion, there is an aspect of self-examination that is necessary. That we wouldn't take these elements in an unworthy manner. So as we come and we take of the elements this morning, at the same time, there's a part of us that wants to say, Lord, cleanse me. Lord, you want communion with me. You want a closeness of fellowship with me. But if there's anything in me that doesn't belong, if there's sin in my life, that fellowship is being damaged even now. I can't have that closeness of communion, of fellowship with the Lord when stuff has been allowed to have a place in my life that doesn't belong there. And so as we take the communion elements, there, there needs to be an aspect of us kind of taking a moment and saying, Lord, first and foremost, Lord, forgive me, cleanse me. If there's things that the Holy Spirit's putting his finger on in your life that you would, in humility, say, Lord, I confess. That's sin. Maybe I've been trying to call it something else, but it's sin. And Lord, I renounce and I repent of that thing today. Lord, I lay it at your feet. Lord, cleanse me. Restore that closeness of fellowship with me. As I seek to remember, Jesus, your body that was broken and that your blood that was shed. So I want us to do that this morning. Let's just take a moment. I'm just going to be silent here just for just a little bit. Just give us a little bit of time. If there is those things, if there's anything at all that needs to be confessed, renounced, repented of, that we would be able to bring those things before the Lord and lay them at his feet before we seek to commune with him through these elements. So let's just take just a little bit of silence here.
Jesus, we don't want to remain in anything that you shed your blood to set us free from. Lord, we want our lives to be holy unto you. And so, Lord, whatever may be in there, Lord, whatever may be in our hearts, God, that doesn't belong, Lord, would we not leave those things hidden any longer? But Lord, would those things be laid at your feet? Would they be confessed to you? Lord, would we say the same thing about our sin that you do? And Lord, would you forgive us? Forgive us of our sins. Lord, would you cleanse us of all unrighteousness? Lord, we're thankful that your word says if we confess, if we confess our sins to you, Lord, you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord Jesus, you desire that closeness of fellowship with us, Lord, and nothing should remain in us that would disturb that, that would damage that closeness, Lord, that intimacy with you that you desire. And Lord, really that we desire to have as well. And so Lord, cleanse us. Lord, we desire to have your power at work in us, Lord. We desire that growth to happen, that that would happen in us individually, but also as a church. But Lord, those things don't come unless there's also a cleansing. And so God, would you cleanse us? Would you purify us, Lord, individually as a church? Lord, have your way with us, Lord. Would we give you our hands, give you our lives, Lord, to do with as you please. Lord, that you would be able to use us for your kingdom and your glory. Lord, work through our lives. Lord Jesus, would you be magnified in each of our hearts, Lord, in the lives of others, that, Lord, we would see and others would see you for how great you truly are. Lord, would your word grow mightily and prevail. And, Lord, as we take these communion elements, Jesus, we remember your body that was broken. Lord, that you were whipped, you were beaten. Your beard was plucked out. You had a crown of thorns thrust into your scalp. That Jesus, you were nailed to a Roman cross. And you did that for us. That Jesus, you shed your blood. You became our propitiation, our atonement, our sacrificial lamb. And Jesus, you paid our debt in full. Lord, all of this you did by shedding your blood, your blood that brings forgiveness. Lord, your blood that has brought us into a whole new covenant, a covenant of grace. Jesus, we take the bread and the juice, we drink the juice, Lord. We do these things in remembrance of you. And Lord, at the same time, Lord, as Paul shared there in that passage, we look forward with rejoicing to your return. Jesus, proclaiming your death until you come. And so, Lord, we take these elements now in remembrance of you. Guys, go ahead and take the bread and then the juice. Jesus, we love you. We're so thankful for you. 
Lord, we want to magnify you now through these songs. Lord Jesus, because you're worthy. You're worthy of our worship, Lord. You're worthy of every bit of our lives, Lord, everything that we could ever bring. Jesus, you are worthy. And Lord, we want to just rejoice in who you are and what you've done as your blood-bought bride this morning. And Lord, would you make us a people, Lord, who are, Lord, used by you, Lord, to take back what should never belong to enemy in the, in the, in the enemy in the first place, Lord, which is the lives, the souls of people. Lord, use us, God, to bring your gospel to those that are in chains to the enemy, Lord, that they would find life and hope, salvation in Jesus Christ. Lord, we long for that. Long to see that in the lives of family members and friends and coworkers and neighbors. To see you do that, Lord, all throughout our country and all throughout our world. Lord, we know that revival begins with us. And so, God, would you revive us this morning? Ignite in us, Lord, a passion for your name that could not be extinguished. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.